Well, welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. A couple of shout-outs first. Thanks to those who helped me with suggestions, Catherine Pillay and Sarah Britton Pillay, and Mark Henning for his suggestion that I read Charles von Onselin's latest book, The Capitalist Cowboy, which, as he says, brings an American dimension to the war. I'll be looking more closely at the economic and other global effects in some future podcasts based on some of these suggestions. So thanks. But right now it's January 1900 and midsummer in South Africa. Heat waves can top 40 degrees Celsius in places and in the region close to Ladysmith in Natal, humidity adds to the uncomfortable condition. The high temperatures create violent thunderstorms which can drench the parched landscape in more than 30 millimeters of rain in half an hour. Rivers that wind languidly through deep canyons surrounded by a thick bush suddenly turn into gushing monsters that sweep all before them. And one of the most powerful of these rivers is the Tugela, which the British must cross successfully along with their equipment in order to get to Ladysmith, where 13,000 of their troops are besieged. The first attempt at Colenso on the 15th of December was a colossal failure for the commander Sir Redverse Buller, who lost his job as commander-in-chief of British forces in South Africa after the defeat at the hands of Louis Boerter. While we await the arrival of the new commander, Lord Roberts, Buller receives a message from Ladysmith's commander-in-chief, Sir George White, saying a typhoid outbreak has laid low over 2,000 of his men. After vacillating for weeks, Buller now decides to move. His first point is to shift 23,000 troops to the west of the Tugela, near what the British call the Rangeworthy Hills, or Tabanyama as they're really known, looking to cross at Port Heater's Drift. But the sheer walls around the crossing in the deep canyons worried Buller and his military advisers. We heard last week how Winston Churchill, who's with Buller as a war correspondent for the Morning Post newspaper, has already decided that Port Heater's Drift is a bad place to cross. The cliffs are five or six hundred feet high, sheer in places, and the view afforded gives entrenched defenders a huge advantage. So Buller changes his mind and splits his force. He did this at Colenso, which led partly to his failure. Now he's going to do it again. In this case, Buller reconnoitred the crossing point a few kilometers up the river called Trichard's Drift, and he then believes this is a better place to cross. As Churchill writes in the Morning Post, The long interval between the acts has come to an end. The warning bell has rung. Take your seats, ladies and gentlemen. The curtain is about to rise. Buller's troops are bivouacked at Mount Alice, overlooking Port Heater's Drift. They were growing restless about the slow pace of the attack. A Times correspondent overhears two troops talking and writes. One says, what are we waiting for? Why don't we go on? The other replies, don't you know? No. To give the Boers time to build up their trenches and fetch their guns. Fair, ain't it? Sarcastic, but true. The rain, meantime, had filled it together and it was a dangerous crossing. But it also shielded the men from the Boer artillery, with the heavy thunderstorms obscuring their movements and the thick mist. On the 11th of January, the advance guard of Buller's army, under the command of Dundonald, the mounted brigade, managed to cross the Tugela after the Boers abandoned the southern bank, worried that the flooding river would cut them off. By the 16th, the main body of his army moved ahead to cross the river. 
Thousands of men waded into the flooding together, some up to their necks, holding on to each other's rifles, and managed to make it across without a shot being fired at Port Gita's Drift. By sundown, around half of the men were across, and campfires could be seen on both sides of the river as men prepared food and dried their clothes. So Buller now had one arm, his left arm, across the river, but instead of driving forward, he stopped and concentrated on his second arm, ten kilometres northeast or the, to the right, at Trichard's Drift. A strange hog-backed hill loomed over the men there, known as Lookout Hill by the British, and ironically, the exact spot where fur trekkers in the 1830s had stood looking out over the green land of Natal, which they called their promised land. The Boers called it Spionkop, Spy's Head. At first glance, the two-pronged attack appeared bold and highly likely to work, but it's when you burrow into the details that an incongruous fact emerges, which many have not explained to this day, although we're free to speculate. And that is, Buller put two-thirds of the large British force in the hands of General Charles Warren, who has just arrived from Britain. Warren has been enticed out of retirement by the British War Office, because he has some experience in South Africa. But that was in the 1870s, 30 years before the magazine rifle and modern warfare, and suddenly he's in charge of the lion's share of men and materiel, while Buller, the actual commanding officer in Natal, has a much smaller and weaker force. Why? Why did the man who'd planned the mission pile his second-in-command's plate while his own was bereft? Buller proceeded then to send a note to Lord Lansdowne, the Secretary of Defence, in London. In a telegram, he said, I propose that Warren, taking 36 guns, field artillery, three brigades, and 1,500 mounted men, shall cross five miles to the west at Trichard's Drift. The mountain which forms the right flank of enemy defence will be turned by his advance. He agrees with this. Bizarrely, Warren had done nothing of the kind, and at this point hadn't even seen Trichard's drift. Why did Buller flat out lie? Warren then reconnoitred Trichard's drift two days after Buller's request and the note to Lansdowne, and Warren agreed the crossing could be made. But he added the ominous warning that if it was to be used, the hill of Spion Corp should be taken at once because according to intelligence reports, there were two Boer long-range artillery pieces on the Corp, which would then fire on the British troops as they marched along open ground to Ladysmith. It was also the highest ground in the area. You don't need to be a military expert to know he was right about the second point. Warren asked for long-range guns of his own to oppose the Boer guns, but Buller brushed aside the suggestion for three reasons. Firstly, Buller didn't believe the intelligence reports, which had been wrong so often before. Well, they were wrong again. There weren't heavy Boer guns on Spion Corp. Secondly, he said, even if they did exist, he thought his artillery were more than a match for the Boers. So far, that was mostly true. But at Spion Corp, that proved hopelessly optimistic. And thirdly, he wanted to bypass the hill, moving around it to access the open plain to the north and then march quickly and straight to Ladysmith, taking the chance that the high ground could be avoided. That's just jaw-dropping, actually. This would only make sense if the environment was jungle or could obscure his men as they marched along the flat plain to Ladysmith. 
But from Spion Corp, they'd be in full view virtually the entire route. And if there were large Boer guns on the top, or anywhere nearby, you can just imagine the carnage caused by hundreds of sharpshooters amongst the Boer commandos. So once again, the die was cast. Warren, like Buller, though, he wanted to spend time moving his food and logistics support closer, as well as ambulance equipment, before actually attacking. General Roberts, meanwhile, had arrived in Cape Town, and was being kept informed of the British movement through telegraph messages. He realised they were moving too slowly, and sent an urgent message to Buller, which read, It is, I am sure, needless for me to urge the importance of there being no delay upon the road. Rapidity of movement is everything against an enemy so skilful in strengthening defensive positions. The Boers had thousands of black workers building their trenches. So as the British moved below, the Boers merely built their trenches along the hills following the British. That shows you just how slowly the British were crawling along. Correspondents were unkind. They too had realised just how incongruous this centipede was, and it was akin to a circus, as Pemberton writes in his book Battles of the Boer War. He describes the situation thus. Infantry guns, gunners' ammunition, horsemen, wagons hung all over like a gypsy van with clattering utensils, drivers plying whips like fishing rods, bakers, cooks, telegraphists, typewriters, paymasters, office tents, clerks, telegraph wires and poles, sappers, chaplains, doctors, ambulances, signalers, cobblers, balloons with aeronauts, heliographs, traction steam engines, pontoons. It's literally a city on the move. This precluded any sort of surprise, which may have afforded their men some protection. The Boers watched from the hills once more, as they realised two attacks were now planned. One where the British had been at Port Gita's Drift, and the second where Warren was ambling towards at Trichard's Drift. So they merely built a number of defensive works there and kept an eye on the British moving along the slopes digging trenches day by day. Louis Bouton knew that when the attack came, Buller would try a night manoeuvre, so many of his men slept during the day and remained awake at night. Buller's men dragged themselves in plain view to their starting point near Trichard's Drift. That night, Warren issued orders that there would be no talking, smoking or showing lights at the beginning of the march, as though it was going to be a dash. It wasn't. It was going to be another crawl. I have mentioned that the system of command was part of the problem in the British military at this point. Buller's actions gave credence to this view. He was the commander-in-chief of the Natal Field Force, but didn't actually command it directly during the coming operation. He went back to Spearman's camp opposite Portgita's Drift with his entire staff, probably to enjoy a few bottles of champagne. Sixteen kilometres away, at Trichard's Drift, Warren was left to direct the battle. In front of Buller, Littleton was trying to create a diversion and to cross a small drift fittingly called Skeet Drift or Shoot Drift, which amounted to a third bit of action that Buller was supposed to manage. Buller was in a way a kind of umpire in cricket or commentator. You must understand that for all his gumption and physical attributes, well over six feet tall and domineering, his personality was one of self-distrust and depression. He also happened to really dislike Warren who was dapper and confident. Let's try and understand what had happened to this experienced soldier, Red vs. Buller, the very epitome of British imperial military might. He was fired as commander of the British forces in South Africa, demoted to commander-in-chief in Natal, and then his superiors in London had sent to him this Irishman, Charles Warren chap, who was actually retired. 
So his attitude at this point appeared to be, very well, you sent him, let's see what he can do. That was what could be called a curve ball for Warren, who had never so much as seen 15,000 British troops together at one time, let alone command them. But there he was, in charge of the offensive that was to relieve Ladysmith, the biggest battle fought in the world anywhere in 1900. Warren began to cross Trichard's Drift. Wasn't that simple. First, a pontoon was built. Then the wagons and men began marching across, and it's at this moment where some must have begun to question the whole process. Instead of attacking the high ground immediately and forcing the Boers to retreat, he ordered his men not to move more than a thousand metres beyond the river. Then he sat, personally, and oversaw the crossing at the pontoon. How bizarre! This was the job of a junior officer. Field Marshal Birdwood was thinking just that, as he slowly marched across the Tugela, watching Warren watching him. It took 26 hours for the men and material to cross the river. We all expected and hoped this should at once cross and attack before the Boers were ready for us, but no, it was the exact opposite of the Crimea, where troops starved. Here, troops are, if anything, overfed, and the generals are bound hand and foot by their supply columns, writes Birdwood after the war. In reality, a grand total of five Boers were to be found in the six kilometres between the drift and the slopes of Tabanyana Mountain. The five were spotted in a farmhouse and then shelled out of it by the British artillery. Warren was scared stiff by the Boers' mobility, but with Barton's brigade and long guns at Calenzo, Littleton, who'd crossed at Portquita's Drift, and he now at Trichard's Drift, and more troops available to outflank the Boers, it was impossible for the Boers to protect all areas at once. But these ghosts of the felt had dominated previous large-scale engagements so completely that myths about their numbers and flexibility now dominated British strategy. Ultimately, Warren had a three-day plan. Forget a few hours of attack. Days one to three would be dominated by small testing raids on the Boers so that his men, who'd mostly not experienced warfare, would be blooded and gain experience. Lord Dundonald, who emitted Colenso, and was in charge of the cavalry, was one of the few officers who desperately tried to change Warren's plan. He suggested that the units be afforded more freedom to decide individually when and where to move, and Warren exploded in anger. How dare these uppity officers question his three-day plan? On the 18th of January, with his precious wagon train halfway across the Tugela, he lashed out at Dundonald. The cavalry commander had already crossed on the British left, as I said earlier, and was trying to wheel behind the Boers to outflank them and perhaps score a minor victory. Instead, Warren flew into a rage and ordered Dundonald back, saying he was afraid his men would be attacked if they had been so weakened by the cavalry moving to the left and around the back. A real fight now developed as a group of around 250 Boers were intercepted by Dundonald as his men rode back and around 80 Boers were shot in the ensuing melee. Warren, upon hearing of this, still didn't grasp the concept of holding the initiative and a lightning attack. Shockingly, after Warren's three more days, he then asked Buller for three more to sort out some special arrangements, as he put it. Even the vacillating Buller was surprised and regarded this request as, as he said, aimless and irresolute, but then agreed. One of these special arrangements was an attack on Tabanyama Hill, or the Rangeworthy Hills as the British called them. Ever since the 15th of January, Buller had given secret instructions for Warren to cross Trichard's Drift, then swing around Spionkop from the left. 
On the 20th of January, Warren launched his first real attack, but it was on Tabanyama. His ponderous approach meant that Louis Boita had increased the defensive numbers from 600 to 7,000 men close to or on Spion Kop and in the vicinity of Tabanyama. Buller then created a small diversionary attack on Portkita's Drift to the west, and in the ensuing firefights, both at Tabanyama and Portitas, one British officer was killed along with 30 other ranks. Around 20 officers and 280 troops were wounded. It was violent, but the Boers had also suffered casualties. By the 23rd of January, Warren had again stopped moving and demanded more artillery. Buller realised that his newly arrived second-in-command was a real problem, and then pondered firing him. Buller rode to meet Warren and basically read him the riot act. Attack now, or Buller would order the withdrawal of his force, which would be an insult. Move to the west and around Spionkop and do it now. Warren refused. A stronger manager than Buller would have seized control of his army and committed to his strategy. Instead, Buller backed down. Warren had concocted a new plan based on his original idea to launch an attack on Spionkop directly instead of bypassing it. Attack Spionkop at its highest point, said Warren. Go straight up the sides of the steep-sided mountain, a climb of 1,600 feet and 600 of those almost vertical. Warren's plan has been described as perverse, attacking a mountain through its nub, but it wasn't as stupid as it sounded. Cracking the nut at its hardest point meant the Boers thought this route was the last place the British would launch an attack. They were thin on the ground there. It also meant the British could bombard the Boers below if they succeeded. And so it was on the 23rd of January 1900, a force of over 2,000 men gathered at the foot of Spionkop in a large gully awaiting the night that would lead to extraordinary figures of death and destruction for the British over that day, the next, and two days hence. A correspondent for the Manchester Guardian newspaper, J.B. Atkins, writes, South African hills are like the sea. At a distance they seem smooth, but look close into them and you will find unsuspected valleys and crests. Nothing on the face of South African nature is what it seems. You see the British trenches up there, seeming to lie immediately under the Boer trenches. But if you go up, you will find they are on different hills, and a deep valley lies between. The British were awaiting their fate in such a valley. But it's the reality of how deceptive the hills of South Africa are that will doom thousands of British troops to death and injury. Spionkop is not a simple mountain. It has parts you cannot see from below. Why didn't Warren order his aeronauts, as he called them, the balloonists, to ascend with their telescopes to check out what exactly lay at the top of Spionkop? Well, we'll find out next week. Please join me for the full details of the assault on Spionkop. That's in episode 19. I've concentrated on the planning initially because there are some complex maneuvers to explain in this attack and that requires our full attention for the entire podcast. So don't forget to check out our website abwarpodcast.com and Facebook page Anglo Boer War Podcast or direct message me please on Twitter at Des Latham. Goodbye. Daar in my red zal ik ooit weer kan zeu, mij schadet ik weer gekregen. En zonder gedal langs die moeier die ze wal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar mij daarin.